So if you were to divide the world into the good and the bad back then, it wasn't actually East Coast, West Coast. It was theory versus not theory. And LA, like many places, had its zones where there was a lot of theory and had its zones where there was very little theory. Architecture, generally speaking, was a place of little theory. Welcome to Argonex Sessions One-to-One. I'm Amelia Taylor-Hockberg, and for this February 29th, 2016 episode, I speak with writer, critical theorist, and architecture academic, Sylvia Levin. Growing up in an academic family that had her splitting a childhood between New York and Rome, Levin trained as a flautist and vocalist before then turning to architecture, getting her PhD from the Department of Art and Archaeology at Columbia in 1990. Since she has been a fixture in the Southern California art and architecture scene, and currently serves as the director of the critical studies programs at UCLA's Department of Architecture and Urban Design. I invited her on the podcast after the announcement of MEET, a new summer program she was spearheading at SciArc. It stands for Making Exhibitions in Architecture Today. I asked Laven about her perspective on Southern Californian architecture discourse and how academia informs practice. Enjoy my one-to-one with Sylvia Laven. So I would like to just start, if we can, from what might be the very beginning. Um, I'm interested, where did you grow up? Where I grew up is actually a difficult question to answer because I grew up in a lot of different places, primarily going back and forth between New York and Rome. But just to give you a sort of flavor of it, I never went to the same school twice in a row until I was in high school. So, but then I went to high school in Princeton, New Jersey, but by then I think most of my growing up was done. (laughs) So what was the reason for that uh, itinerancy? Uh, Interesting. You know, both of my parents are academics and uh, that was a time in which there was lots of sort of money for academics, at least academics of a humanistic bent. So my father taught someplace where you only, basically, you only taught two semesters out of four, and there was lots of grant money, and every now and again, he'd have to go back to New York to teach, and so we went around where his his research and my mother's research took them, which was mostly to Rome. And then the relationship to New York and that general area, was that just where they were from, and so it made sense to them to say a home place, or had it more to do with the uh, academic nature. Yeah, no, no, no. So my father was a professor at the Institute of Fine Arts, the art history, the graduate art history school at NYU. So technically our home base was New York. It just happened to be that during those 14 years, he had a lot of, you know, leave and fellowship time. Hmm. And so spent a lot of it in Rome. So when you were in Rome, did you have any, just as a child and going back there constantly, did you have an understanding of the place as as a kind of architectural mecca? And how did you kind of come into understanding Rome's particular place in architectural history? I don't think I completely did until I was a graduate student. So when I was a graduate student, one in a very competitive and highly neurotic program, which I think is what all doctoral programs are like, one of my classmates went to the professor of my Baroque architectural history class and complained that I should not be allowed to take the exam because I was a ringer. Having grown up in Rome, the kid of a scholar of Baroque things, it was somehow assumed that this had all entered my pores kind of by osmosis. 
At the time, I thought it was ridiculous and paranoid and neurotic. (laughs) And in retrospect, uh, she was totally right, you know, which is to say that I knew things about Rome and that, you know, and its place in the history of architecture that nobody without my experience would have exactly had. You know, most of my long period of time in Rome was between, you know, I was quite young, but sort of up until the mid-1970s. And that was a strange period mm. because there there was no contemporary culture in Rome, if, if I can say something so crass. <laughs> you know, the days of, the glory days of Rome were over and, you know, nobody was really interested in historical things and there was no culture to support contemporary things. So Rome was a, was a kind of a strange backwater, you know, not at all the way it is now. So my experience of it was, was more a place of lacking, you know, that didn't have modern things and didn't have bazooka bubblegum. I mean, remember that one in particular, <laughs> um, But I suppose, you know, then you absorb unconsciously other aspects and other forms of knowledge about about a city. And it's really that sort of unconscious stratum of knowledge that I got that really was an unfair advantage. (laughs) Well, so your parents, were they art and architecture scholars? Was that their particular focus? Yep. And so was it over a source of uh, family contention of whether or not you would kind of follow in those footsteps? Big time. (laughs) So I guess if you, from that point, after you have this back and forth, you move on to continue get going through studies at Columbia. And what was your particular source of study at Columbia? What was your research focus on? Well, so let me just take one step back. Sure. You know, I, ma- I, I made like all kids, you know, I made a bid for freedom. So it's not as though I immediately and always knew I would go into the family schmata business, which is in effect what I did. But there was a period of time where I was a very serious musician and went to conservatory and went to Oberlin Conservatory and went to Manhattan School of Music. And, you know, the, I had a different life path ahead of, you know, that I had staked out. Hmm. And for, for various reasons, I sort of backed into things and became a general English major. And so it, in other words, it, it wasn't quite as simple a process as I'm making it just making it sound. But it does sound like you are a little bit more committed than most in their perhaps adolescent or teenagerish rebellious qualities of saying that you got to the point of conservatory status at something like Oberlin. Just out of curiosity, what music did you play? What was your what was the era of practice there? Believe it or not, I was a double major in voice and flute. And everybody asks me about it. And, you know, one day I decided that this was not for me. I, you know, I I initially thought that Ohio was not a good place for me. So after not very long at Oberlin, I transferred to Manhattan School of Music. And then once I was there, I realized, you know, actually it was the music conservatory world that was not the right for me. And I was living on 110th Street and had to walk through Barnard and Columbia to get from Manhattan School of Music to my apartment. And one day, sort of just without thinking about it, I took a right-hand turn into Barnard. Um, I'm old enough that women did not go to mm. Columbia in those days. Mm-hmm. And I so I took a right turn into Barnard and I said, you know, I, I think I should be at this school, not at that one. And they more or less accepted me that day. <laughs> and I dropped out of music school and essentially never played or sang a note again. It's, it all sounds very dramatic, but I suppose it was. But 
Uh, so that's how that happened. So we can't expect uh, one of your next lectures or interviews in the architecture world to be introed by a flute solo. No, I'm not. I'm not going to sing uh, recitative or anything like that. Although I have become, I was, I was, what I loved more than anything was actually playing early modern music on recorders and, and every, and I still have my instruments around every now and again, I think, you know, I'm going to pick that up. It seems like a nice thing to do in your old age, but so far I haven't done it. So no, I won't, I won't sing or play the note. (laughs) Never too late. Well, I guess I'm very interested then in now because of so much of your work is based in Southern California and you're very heavily involved in, and for have been for many years at UCLA and also have a heavy role at SciArc. And in this kind of West Coast regionalism of architectural discourse, whereas your training is very much from that East Coast area and kind of indebted to that culture. I'm wondering what you kind of, first of all, what brought you out West and kind of your understanding now after many years of being heavily influential and involved in this culture, how you kind of perceive the basic East-West Coast dichotomy? Well, let's start with the first one. Why okay. did you come out here? <laughs> so, so I came out because I was fortunate enough to have received a Getty. Uh, I can't actually remember whether it was a finishing dissertation grant or convert your dissertation into a book grant. But I came out here uh, for a nine month grant period, or that's what I imagined. Mm. And in fact, left my cat in New York uh, with a friend. So I I really imagined it as very temporary. And then while I was here, you know, but I was finishing my degree, I needed to, you know, I was sort of going on the academic uh, job circuit. And they offered me a job at USC. And it, it was actually interesting, because I think that they felt that they had to make a better sort of labor deal with people from the East Coast than the East Coast schools had to make. So there were very good schools on the East Coast, but they were offering very low pay for very heavy teaching loads. And here, that's not the way it worked. And so I ended up at USC and within a very short amount of time, uh, was you know, really within the first semester, sorry, USC, I was recruited to UCLA, really by Frank Israel, who had spent a lot of time in Rome. I mean, I I guess the point is that I fell initially into a crowd here that was itself very New York oriented. So there was a bit of a subculture of New Yorkers here. And that was part of what enabled me to, you know, to feel that I was not in an alien territory, I, su- I suppose. Uh, well, so I wanted to elaborate a little bit on that. So in the 90s, this was in like the late 80s, early 90s? Early 90s. Early 90s. So if, if the context here did have a strong uh, New York accent of sorts, what differentiated it? And what did you come to realize? Did you come to kind of see this emerging West Coast architectural discourse I don't want to call it a regionalism necessarily if it's not limited to Southern California, but just what you kind of saw emerges, emerging as the kind of core concerns of the discourse and and how it was presenting itself with things like Sire kind of being after their you know initial vanguard heyday days and kind of moving into you know having that perspective of both the private university at USC and what UCLA is up to. Just what were your perceptions of how it was distinguishing itself at that time? Well, in those days, 
Gosh, I was pretty naive about the fact that there was supposed to be a big East Coast, West Coast dichotomy (laughs) and didn't really see it in those terms. The terms of the 90s was the ascendancy of what then was called theory. And um, the world then was divided between, was increasingly divided between those who saw value in engaging with what was called theory. I'm not calling it that. I'm just saying that that's what it was mm. called. And and those who did not see the value in that. So if you were to divide the world into, you know, the good and the bad back then, it wasn't actually East Coast, West Coast. It was theory versus not theory. And LA was, like many places, had its zones where there was a lot of theory and had its zones where there was very little theory. Architecture, generally speaking, was a place of little theory. The theory, on the other hand, planning was very advanced in that area. So soja and, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of the, a lot of the sort of critical discourses actually began in LA, if you will. But at any rate, I, I didn't see it as a geographical thing in that way. I saw it as a set of intellectual divisions. So that's the way I saw it. And then I would also go on to say that I would tend still to understand these things in institutional terms, which is to say in LA, a place like SciArc, which is a very important school in, in many regards, is not part of a university. Its most salient characteristic is that it is not part of a university. That gives it enormous freedoms of many kinds, bureaucratic, creative, intellectual, etc. It also limits its capacity to produce certain kinds of discourse. In those days, the discourse machine was heavily oriented towards a certain kind of academic culture. Not intrinsically so, it just it just in those days, that's what was happening. So LA did not have the institutional infrastructure in architecture to be a big theory producing territory. Hmm. And so now it seems we've certainly progressed far away from that, at least in taking from things like the new MEET program that you're kind of spearheading it at SciArc in regards to a curatorial program specifically at SciArc, so presumably also catering towards not just people interested in curating architectural works, but also architects themselves who might be interested in straddling both the art practice and architectural practice kind of fields. So specifically in regards to this MEET program um, about architectural curation, doesn't that kind of speak to this new attention towards the kind of theory aspect of architecture, kind of validating that is that there is this renewed interest in um, the theoretical approach to architecture and also how we can actually curate it. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to start uh, a program devoted to this? Well, the program is is very carefully not organized around the idea of curating in particular, which is to say one of the things that is interesting about exhibition culture today is that exhibitions are a site not just for showing work, let's say, produced elsewhere, which would be the traditional model of the curator, but for producing a complex kind of work that is somewhere between a sort of architecture as a creative practice, architecture as an intellectual critical practice, and architecture as a research and knowledge producing practice. 
So exhibition making now, I think is increasingly, say, better than a book for collecting, producing, and communicating ideas about architecture. One of the things that I think is interesting about LA, or again, interesting and problematic about LA, is is its institutional structure. So if you look around the city, it has a lot of great museums, and none of them have permanent staff or permanent programs in architecture. It's a problem. It's got to also be an opportunity in some way, which is to say that you don't have to work through the the channels of power that make, say, in New York, MoMA be such a dominant force. So we, we don't have the dominant force, but we also don't really have the institutional platforms that support a robust contentious, debateful events around architectural exhibition making. So the more we can activate that through programs at schools, through exhibitions themselves, through conversations about it and so forth, I think the more we can both produce new ideas about architecture and engage new kinds of publics in that conversation. So what about something like the Architecture and Design Museum? Doesn't that hold a little bit of uh, opportunity for those kinds of things? Well, of course. And, and again, I would, I would say that the, the more the merrier, hmm. you know, the more exhibitions, the more discourse, the better, the more there is, the more demands we can make. I mean, I think, I think for now, people in, in the field are more or less happy when anything happens, but that doesn't necessarily hold a very high bar. Right. <laughs> and I think that they do wonderful things. I think that I, I, I would imagine that when you talk to the people who work there, you know, they have to spend a lot of time raising money and, you know, having two sticks to rub together. It's not a, it's not for them, I'm sure, a situation in which they feel fully supported to do the kinds of exhibitions that they want to do at the best level that they could do them. Hmm. So it's great. It's it's great. But, you know, you can't take the A&D Museum or uh, and compare it to a big encyclopedic museum with a full, you know, a full department mm, mm-hmm. and all of that institutional apparatus and funding and so on and so forth. They're just not comparable. Mm. So one last question to also bring in this conversation of emerging forms of architectural exhibitions and renewed interest in or new interest in that. Your most recent book, Kissing Architecture, uh, published in 2011, examines this kind of you know, many puns can be made, but the flirtatious engagement or relationship between emerging often new media art forms in the art world and architects and art practicing architects working in the world of architecture. Is there a particular moment or architectural work or architect that you know of that you first noticed operating in this kind of flirtatious territory that promote, that prompted you to write the book or um, just made you notice, take notice of this uh, happening? Or perhaps maybe not the initial, the originator, but just who do you see operating today that kind of straddles that line? Uh, I'm not sure I would point to who's. I, I, I think that I was, I was really just trying to say that the that the bandwidth through which we have tended to understand media and architecture has been through the bandwidth of mass media and advertising, and those terms tended to 
they tended to produce a view of architecture in which the the relationship between architecture and building remained very clear, which is to say what architecture is, it is buildings. And then buildings can circulate and be deflated and be reduced to and be critiqued as at their representations in mass media. I guess I was trying to arrive at a formulation that I don't think that architecture as such can be reduced to the notion of building and buildings can't be reduced to the notion of advertising either. And that the relationships between media have now become so rich and manifold that it's very difficult to, and and maybe entirely unproductive, to start trying to delaminate things like media, architecture from one another. So, you know, the actual instigation for that that essay, I wouldn't really, it's just an extended critical essay. It's not a book in any, you know, it doesn't have the gravitas of a book. I'm just saying it, it was actually instigated by a very specific event, which was walking into the Museum of Modern Art to see a P.P. Reist installation and um, thinking about walking into a Museum of Modern Art gallery that, you know, I had always found totally banal and uninteresting and always found it to be a place where I felt very sad for architecture. You know, if that was the best the Museum of Modern Art could do, it was pretty damn depressing as far as I was concerned. And so Pipi Rist's installation was just an opportunity to think how architecture can be transformed, can be very largely transformed with a little bit more nerve. And, you know, so I think that the Institute, I mean, P.P. Rist is not very controversial, um, to say the least. You know, there are a lot of people who think of her as, you know, producing pretty art that's not controversial enough. But nevertheless, she was permitted to operate on a level of with a degree of inventive latitude that architects generally don't have. So that was really where it started. Well, it's definitely something that we kind of see reduced unfairly, perhaps, but reduced to the idea of this art-architecture dichotomy or potentially self-reinforcing kind of hybrid style of operating where if it doesn't work in architecture, you can do it in art, or if it doesn't work in art, you can try it in architecture. But it's definitely something that we constantly uh, have a intention to on Archonnect and are very interested in exploring is how architects are approaching these new ideas and moving forward and continually defining what the discipline is capable of. So Sylvia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and, and talking with me. You're welcome. Glad to have you. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one with Sylvia Levin. Dani Lovoynov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday, so make sure to not miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. You can keep up with podcasting news from Archonnect on Twitter through at ArcSessions or hashtag ArcConnectSessions, or you can email us through connect at Thanks again for listening to One to One. <laughs>